All right. Well, if you have a Bible, please open it up to Romans. Would you do that? The book of Romans. And we're going to begin actually today in Romans chapter 5. This section of Romans in chapter 12, which we'll be focused on a little later, we're going to be talking about personal qualities for effective ministry, personal qualities for effective ministries. Years ago, some of us remember this, we used to get this massive thing once a year at our house. It was called the Yellow Pages. And, um, and uh, we as a church were paying, literally, and we had a very effective ad, but we were paying over $200 a month for an ad in the Yellow Pages. And that was the way to advertise. And the motto for the Yellow Pages, the official Yellow Pages, I know they came out with different ones, but the motto for the official Yellow Pages was this, the one that gets used, okay? The one that gets used. Well, bring that to the believer. Bring that to those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior. What is, why is it that some believers are greatly used by God and then others seem to accomplish almost nothing? Both are saved. Both have trusted Christ as Savior. Why is one fruitful and the other is not fruitful? Well, I think it's two things. We saw it in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. One, yielding to the Lord or presenting our bodies a living sacrifice and then being obedient to the Lord, being obedient to him. Now, it's really all that it comes down to. Lord, I I surrender my will to you. I will do what you want me to do. And then he says, great, I've got this manual for what I need you to do. It's called the word of God. And if you will take it, read it, apply it, I will greatly use you. And that's really what it comes down to. Now, these qualities that we're going to talk about, because there are aspirations, there are ministries for us to do, and there's qualities having to do with our character that we are going to look at today in Romans chapter 12. And these are things that God wants all of us to do. In a sense, it's the working out of the commitment that you find in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. But let me say this before we go on. How to get to heaven is not the issue. You see, people who don't understand true Christianity, many times, and we talk about, when those of us who are Christians talk about Christian responsibility, people think, oh, well, that's, that's what I need to do. I, I need to commit to that. I need to do that if I want to go to heaven. Nothing could be further from the truth. Your good works, is as good as good works are, they won't get you to heaven. That is not the means of getting to heaven. The way to heaven is through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So let me mention that right up front. What did he do? You see, here's the issue. We have a sin problem. We have a sin problem. And our sin separates us from God. If this is you and me and this is our sin, we're all sinners. We all know that, right? And our sin separates us from God. We have sin. Now, God says if we die with our sin will spend forever separated from God in hell. We're already separated from him by the very fact that we're sinners. Heaven is a perfect place. And for you to get into heaven, all your sin has to be gone. Well, none of us can get rid of that. We can make promises, we can try, but a payment has to be made, okay? It's a, you might say we've broken God's law and there's a fine. There's a debt that we owe. And the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever. Now, good works won't pay for sin. Now, one verse from Genesis to Revelation says good works will pay for sin. No, a death payment has to be made, a death payment. Of course, if we do it, 
will be lost forever. But the beauty of the message of Scripture is that Jesus Christ, because he loves us so much, see, God loves us, hates our sin, but he loves us. Because he loves us so much, God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, entered the human race, this hand representing him, and he came into the world, and when he came into the world, he came for one purpose, to die for your sins and mine. And that's exactly what he did when he died on the cross. He took all of our sin upon himself. He made the payment so we don't need to. And then he came back from the dead. And he says that if we will put our faith in him, trust in him, we will forever be with him. He will give us everlasting life. In Romans chapter five and verse eight, it says this, but God commendeth, and that means he put on display. God displayed his love. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Do you see that? There's no word here of of saying you have to turn from all your sin, you have to forsake your sin, you know, you have to repent of your sin. Nowhere. That's not it. While we're yet sinners. You see, we're helpless. We're helpless. You might say, no, I, I think I have to turn from my sins to go to heaven. How many? Permanently? You know what? There's not a person who's ever done that not a person. You can't turn from all your sins permanently to get into heaven. As a matter of fact, if you're looking at that, then you're not looking at what Jesus Christ did for you as your way to heaven. You're looking at what you need to do as far as your good works. The Bible's clear. Good works do not save. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, that's why Jesus came, because we could not do enough good works to take care of this, because good works won't pay for sin. A death payment had to be made. He came as a substitute. He died in our place. He took the wrath of God. He was buried, came back from the dead, and if you trust in him, he'll give you everlasting life. In chapter 3 of Romans, it says, therefore, verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, by faith, without the deeds of the law, which are the commandments, which is really the highest level. They came right from God, okay? There's a righteousness that we find in the Mosaic law, in the commandments, but yet the Bible says that's not how you're saved. That's not how you're declared righteous or justified. You're justified by faith. And you notice this, it isn't by faith and the works of the law. It's by faith without the works or the deeds of the law. And so, friend, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to do that. You need to do that. Once you're saved, is there a life for us to live? Yes, there is. Okay, and that's what we pick up on in Romans chapter 12. So turn there, Romans chapter 12, and we've covered up through verse 8 at this point. And then it says this in verse 9, it says, let love be without dissimulation, and I'll define these terms in a minute, abhor that which is evil cleave to that which is good. So what about these qualities for effective ministry? Well, I'll tell you what, if we apply these things and we live out these things, God is going to use us in amazing ways. So let's look at the first one. We see the quality of consistent sacrificial love. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, it says, let love be without dissimulation. The word love there is agape love. It's the highest form of love. It's sacrificial love without demanding anything back in return. In other words, I am going to act, I'm going to love you and act in such a way towards you just for your benefit. 
Whether you reciprocate or not, now we all would love that to have that reciprocated, but whether that takes place or not, I am going to love you and respond to you in a way that God would want me to do that. Let love be without dissimulation. The word dissimulation means hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. It is a commitment to do what is biblical. Now, I believe this in verse 9. Verse 9 sets the stage all the way through the end of the chapter. In other words, we use the term unpack, okay? I think from verse 9, starting in verse 9, this statement, let love be without dissimulation, starting there, we start unpacking what that means through the rest of the chapter. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, okay? This verse sets the stage. In a sense, the rest of these verses paint a picture of what it means to love without hypocrisy. Let us not just say we love people, but let's love people. And how do we do that? We do that through our actions, through our thoughts, through our deeds, okay? The only way this can be done is by doing what we know is right, And God, of course, is the one who defines that. The second one we see here in verse 9. Now, I'm not necessarily using all the exact words, okay? I'm I'm generalizing what I believe the idea is. And the second quality is the quality of purity. The quality of purity. Inward purity towards the Lord. We know that when we trust Christ the Savior, all of our sins are cleansed away, and that is true. And we become pure in a sense in the eyes of God when we trust Christ the Savior because all of our sins, God has made us holy according to scripture. But it's one thing to have a perfect standing with Christ that is holy and pure and righteous. It's another thing to live out that life. That's what this is talking about, living it out. The quality of purity, notice he says, abhor that which is evil. The word abhor means to hate or detest that which is evil. Now this is not a self-righteous attitude, but one that has sided with the holiness of God. It's all it is, abhor that which is evil. I'm gonna take God's side against that. That's all it's saying. Does that mean we're gonna be perfect? No. Does that mean we're better than others? No. But it's a driver in the mind. It's a decision. It's a standard that we've decided to live by. Abhor that which is evil. God has made us pure. We should be pure in the way we live. We have developed, though, today, unfortunately, dear friend, we have developed a twisted view of the grace of God. We love to talk about grace, and we ought to. We ought to. It's awesome. But grace never teaches us carnal or careless living. Grace teaches us pure, righteous living. We're not going to go there, but Titus chapter 2, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, in this present age. God's grace teaches us godly living, not careless living. Godly living. Okay? You see, we've gotten today to where we tolerate everything and we stand against nothing. And that is not God's way. When Jesus came, it says in John chapter one, he was full, packed to the full, filled to the full, that's what the word means. He was full, it says, of grace and truth. You might say, well, was he 50% grace, 50% truth? No, Jesus can be full of both. He is the, he is, uh, that, those are attributes of his, 
And this was his character. And if we as believers are walking in fellowship with him, okay, it'll bring balance to our lives to where we are full of grace and truth, both. Yes, we need to be gracious. More about that in a few minutes. But certainly standing for the truth and not dismissing the standards and the righteousness of God. You notice, abhor that which is evil, cling or cleave to that which is good. We need to stand for what is right and pure, and also we need to do it with a good attitude. In Psalm 97, in verse 10, it says this, ye that love the Lord hate evil. All right? How should we as believers be? If we say we love the Lord, then we ought to hate evil. Why? Because that is God's will. He preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Now back to uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. We've seen the, the quality of consistent sacrificial love. We've seen the quality of purity. And let's go to verse 10. It says, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. We see this next quality, the quality of brotherly love. Now, this word love is different than the one that we just saw earlier. The first one was agape love. This is phileo love. No, it has nothing to do with the fish you caught, okay, filleting it. This is brotherly love is the idea. And it is a kindness. It is affection towards one another, seeing each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is directed to the church. We need to truly love one another. This is an attitude that we need to have, okay? It is a foundational thing. Kindly affection, it means to cherish one's kindred, to be fond of one another as family. That's why the church is called the family of God, because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need to see each other that way, and we need to love each other as brothers and sisters in the family. Remember this and more about this in a few minutes, if there are believers in your local church that you can't get along with, all right? Let me say this, friend. You need to have a mind of uh, settling that and getting it right. Why? Well, because remember, you're going to live forever with them. You're going to be around the table with them in eternity. We're going to fellowship for all eternity with one another. Now, notice this idea in honor, it says in... uh, at the end of the verse, in honor, preferring one another. That has to do with putting others before ourselves. We have to think beyond ourselves and look at how we can stir up others for the Lord, okay? And what we do affects everyone else. Do we understand that? My actions affect everybody around me. My attitudes affect everybody around me. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 30. Four and 35, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love one towards another. That loving one another in the family of God. Let's move on. Verse 11. It says, uh, Romans 12, 11, it says, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Okay, we see next the quality of spiritual diligence. 
of spiritual diligence, not slothful in business. That doesn't mean that, you know, uh, it's not referring to, let's say you have your own business out in the world as a means of income and you're sloppy in your books. That's not the idea. Now you can apply it that way if you want in the sense of a, a personal application to yourself, but this is within the church. This is within the body of Christ. Don't drag your feet spiritually is what it's getting at, okay? Uh, you know, sometimes, and we don't have a lot of people this way at our church here at Northland, but sometimes people get a responsibility. I, I saw this over the years, many times in, other, in different places, they get a responsibility, oh, will you do this? We need somebody to do this, and you know, and then, and, oh, yeah, well, okay, I'll do it. And uh, that's the opposite of, of the way we ought to be. But then, yeah, I'll do it. And so they do it, and what they do is they don't do a good job of it. Maybe they get to where they're teaching a Sunday school class, and they don't prepare until 11.30 or midnight, the night before, and then it's half prepared, and they just figure, well, I kind of know this, I'll wing it tomorrow morning in Sunday school. That's being slothful, lazy in business. And by the way, sometimes the mindset with that goes this way. Well, you know, I'll, I'll wing it. I'll just, I'll just get it done. Some way I'll get it done because after all, I mean, they ought to be happy. I volunteered. I'm doing it for free. They're not paying me. Well, friend, that's not the right attitude. The attitude should be, wow, I have a privilege to serve Christ. God's given me this ministry. You know what? I'm going to do it with all my heart because it's for my Savior, okay? Whether you get paid something here or recognition here or not, if you're doing it for Christ, you're going to be rewarded one day at the judgment seat. Be diligent, okay? And you notice what it says, not slothful in business, but the opposite of that, fervent in spirit, Serving the Lord. If you are not fervent in spirit, can I ask you this as a Christian? Why aren't you fervent in spirit? Don't we have the greatest person and the greatest thing to live for in all the world, the Lord Jesus Christ and, and reaching the world with the gospel? Man, we ought, to, we ought to be excited. Now, it's kind of interesting because that word fervent is the word zeo, okay? And of course, it's related to the word zealous, And the word literally means boiling hot, boiling hot. Have you ever heard of someone say, boy, that Christian's really on fire for the Lord? That's the idea. They're fervent in spirit. They're boiling hot. They're excited. It's like man alive. They are really going for Christ. That's the idea. Let me ask you this. Do we not have a good reason to be on fire for Christ? We ought to be. Tell you what, if somebody... I don't care what responsibility is. If somebody has a responsibility and they do it with all their heart, number one, God is pleased. Number two, that person's going to get noticed. And number three, God is going to continue to use them to the glory of God. And uh, people notice. And it affects the church in a very positive way. See, if there is a job to do, jump into that job with both feet, okay? Let's get the job done. Let's get going. Let's keep moving as the body of Christ. Romans 12, verse 12, it says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant or constantly in prayer. Let's break this down. Fifth quality is walking by faith. You might say, where is that said? Right there where it says rejoicing in hope. Uh, The word hope means a joyful anticipation. Now, of what? Of what's coming, of the future, 
of what God can do here and what God has promised us in eternity and our homes in heaven and our mansions and, and so forth. You might say, oh, wait a minute there. Don't you know that the, that word mansion in the, in the King James, that word literally means just simply dwellings. It doesn't really mean a mansion. Well, I think the translators were optimists and I think they were positive and I think they were excited about the future. And can I tell you this, dear friend? I do believe there are some Christians who are gonna have mansions. Why? Because they were faithful to God. They served the Lord passionately while they were here. They served the Lord, they served others, and they're just racking up the rewards, and and I think they are gonna have a mansion one day. You might say, well, I don't know if that's sound theology. Well, my Bible says mansion, I'm gonna believe it, all right? Rejoicing in hope, though. Rejoicing in, in joyful anticipation of the future. This is a picture of a person who is walking by faith. Because why would you have a joyful anticipation of the future if you didn't believe what God said about it? It's because we know God's word is true, his promises are true, that we can rejoice and just be excited about the future. Okay? The next one. The quality of patience in tribulation. Do you see that? Patience in tribulation. This is also a picture of somebody who's walking by faith. They know that the Lord is in control even when things are going wrong. They know he's in control. I'll tell you what, with all this stuff going on with COVID-19 right now, I'd be a liar if I told you I don't struggle with any of this stuff and, and deal with discouragement at times and all that. But what brings me back home? What gets me back on, on track? It's the promises of God. I need to be reminded constantly of the promises of God. Listen, and I know God is in control. We all know that. But nevertheless, the details of that and the things that seems like we're losing, are we ever gonna get them back? And, and all of those kind of things. I have to, we have to be reminded by scripture. Look at the big picture. Every day that goes by, we're one day closer to heaven, amen? I mean, think about that. It's awesome. I say, well, yeah, that's true, but we're here and we don't, yeah. Listen, don't, don't undermine your faith. Believe God. Ultimately, God's word, all of it's going to be fulfilled. And it's going to be that way. And Jesus is coming. And I think he could be coming very, very soon. So be patient when things aren't going well, when you're in tribulation, trouble in life. Not the tribulation, because the church is not going through that. But when you are dealing with hardship, okay? We need to walk by faith, trust the Lord. He is in control. Even when things go wrong, as the lady sang this morning, God is good all the time. And if that is true, and if he controls eternity, and he does, then it's all going to work out. He is going to win. He has won. Just a matter of us seeing it happen. God is on our side, and therefore, hey, wait a minute. I'm a child of the king. I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep at it. I'm not going to quit. See, friend, we live by faith in what God's word says. That is the foundation. That is our reason to act the way we do as Christians and respond the way we do and keep going the way we do. It's because God's word is true. He will not fail. He'll be true to his promise. And so all of these things have to do with walking by faith. Let's look at the next one, the quality of living a life of prayer. Living a life of prayer. It is walking and talking with the Lord when? All day long all day long. Now, if you're like me, you 
realize that times when you start, when you feel like the the world is closing in on you or things don't look good or all these different things, you know what? It's a reality check having to do with prayer. I believe this and I found this. When I am walking in prayer, when I am uh, all day long talking to the Lord, what does that do? It keeps us plugged in, you might say. It keeps us in that conversation with the Lord. He talks to us through his word. We talk to him through prayer. And as that continues on during the day, that helps us. It strengthens us and it, and it makes us more effective. Listen, the Lord said, you have not because you ask not. Are we asking? Not for selfish stuff. I'm not talking about that. But are we asking for things that God would want us asking for? We need to be doing that. Hold your place here and look with me to a verse you're probably familiar with, but I want you to see it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Are you in the Bible every day? Several times a day? You need to be. You need to be. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17. You know, people sometimes say, I have a hard time memorizing the Bible. Well, I understand that. And it doesn't get easier as you get older. I hate to tell you that. Of course, we're not getting older, but other people are. But it says... Here's where you start. You start with verses like this. I think you can do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Okay? Pray without ceasing. Now, I know people look at that and they say, well, that's not possible. A person can't live their life and all they do is pray. Friend, you can be in communication with the Lord all day long. See, we think in terms of prayer, either going into a prayer closet or in a special place or only in the morning or this or that. No, the idea of praying without ceasing is is being in communication with the Lord all day long. Okay, when you're in your car, when you're out walking, when you're doing chores at your house, when you're in the garden, eating lunch, no matter what it is, no matter when it is, when you get those open spaces, talk to the Lord. When you, you, you face a challenge, Right then, say, Lord, I really need your help right now. I'm just, and it ought to be a natural part of our life. I think that's what Paul's getting at when he says pray without ceasing. It needs to be a natural part of our life, not just when we're in crisis. And we all do get in those situations. Let's move to verse 13, Romans 12 and verse 13. It says, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Okay, I see in, in uh, here the eighth quality is the quality of generosity. Generosity. Now let me say this. Some of the most happy Christians you'll ever meet are those who are generous. That's not a, an accident. That's the way God planned it. And some of the most miserable Christians you'll ever meet are those who are tightwads, those who are not generous. I thank God for those in our church who are generous people. It is clear that they appreciate the salvation that the Lord has given them. It's also clear that they appreciate our church and what our church stands for. And so we get people who will give and will give generously and they'll give with a smile on their face. That's the way it should be. On Sunday, you don't open your wallet. By the way, there's another thing that everybody's looking at. Okay, how are we going to take the offerings from this point? How do we do communion? Okay, all the stuff about touching things and all that kind of stuff. But like the offering, you don't, the way to give is not as the, as the plate goes by, you look in your wall and you say, oh, there's, I've got two singles and I've got a 20, two singles. You're missing it. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. 
He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Here's what you do. You make your impulse, you look at, if it's two singles and a 20, you, you take the 20 and say, Lord, this is an act of worship to you because I love you. And you let it go. And he will give you the joy that comes with giving. That is the way it needs to be. That's being generous, and that is, that is a godly thing. And through that, you're distributing to the necessity of the saints. Now, that doesn't just mean supporting the church financially. It also means when you know of somebody who has a need, you meet the need. You just meet the need, okay? Just do it. Be sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your life. Boy, I'll tell you what, that makes life exciting. It really does but appreciate what you have. Can I tell you this? Those who are generous, and let me go back as a pastor to those who give to the local church. Those who are generous, God uses them in a way to make up for those who are carnal and don't give, okay? And yes, there are people who come to a church like ours and who don't give. And they'll come, they'll come regularly and they hardly ever give anything, all right? That's sad, because they're not valuing the Lord and they're not valuing what God has given them, the local church. I'll tell you what, if you don't learn anything through this time of isolation, that's what I call it, isolation. Maybe it ought to be probation. If you don't learn anything through this, what you ought to be learning is the value of the local church and the sweetness of fellowship with one another. I know I miss it. I miss it every single day, every single day. But we need to be generous to one another, all right? Let's move on. We see it also in verse 13, the quality of being given to hospitality. Now, that's interesting. Uh, it, It means literally to entertain strangers, okay? In other words, let us go beyond ourselves and our little world and sometimes even our comfort zone and be a blessing to those who we do not know very well. One of the things we have here, usually on a monthly basis at our church, is Sunday dinner. And I know some churches call it potluck. I never liked that term. Maybe in other churches, but not ours. The food is so good, there's no way it's luck. It is culinary skill. And this meal is so great. And by the way, that's another thing we have to look at with all these different things going on. Not to say we're not going to do it, but, you know... uh, Oh, one of, our, one of our men, wait a minute, he works in a place that makes things out of plastics. Maybe he can, he can create individual sneeze guards for every person. That won't work because then you can't get the food in your mouth. Maybe it'll have just a hinge you can flip up and flip down. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to do that. Given to hospitality, okay, it is, it is so important though that we do that and that we're helpful to people. Anyways, that whole idea of a, of a Sunday dinner or, or potluck and having time and, and fellowshipping with people, here's what, I was, what I'm getting at with that. Sunday dinner, I always encourage our people, you know what, today's Sunday dinner, and listen, if, if you didn't know we're having it today, maybe you're a visitor, please stay. It's going to be a great meal together. And not only that, but those of you who come regularly, would you just do me a favor? Make it a goal to sit with somebody you usually don't sit with. You know what that is? You're being given to hospitality. Given to hospitality. Aren't these things practical? It's just amazing. Verse 14, bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. I see number 10, the quality of graciousness. Graciousness. 
And of course, graciousness, and the, the word grace, what does it have in it? Grace means undeserved kindness, undeserved kindness. Wouldn't that fit? Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Do you know what? There are Christians. Now this can be, certainly would apply to lost people persecuting us, but there are Christians who persecute other Christians. Can I tell you, it's just wrong. Now that doesn't mean pointing out false doctrine or wrongdoing and all that. I'm talking about attacking people, attacking them, tearing down their character, going after them because of jealousy or hatred or strife or whatever. Bless them, don't curse them. Bless those who persecute you. I say, well, they're persecuting me, okay? Uh, That's like the two little kids in the playground who are caught fighting. And why did you, Billy, why did you do that? He hit me. Why did you hit him? He hit me back. And back, oh, well, you're never going to solve anything by that. By the way, the last one we're going to look at is being a peacemaker today in our text. So all these things go together, don't they? Be gracious. How spiritual are we? Anyway, we find out when we're under trial. That's when we find out how spiritual we are. We find out how we are when things aren't the way we want them to be. We find out when we are persecuted and when we are attacked, you know? What does the scripture say? If, you, if thou faintest in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. This is the difference, though, between acting and reacting. You see, we can live and act like a Christian when everything's going good, but when things go south, how are we? Do we turn into a carnal person? Well, we need to be careful. Verse 15, rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. I found a word for this that really beautifully goes together with verse 15 to describe this quality, and it's the quality of true compassion. True compassion. Develop the ability to put yourself in the shoes of someone else. That is what compassion is. It means that mercy is, is a synonym for the word compassion. We need the quality of true compassion. And again, develop the ability to put yourself in the shoes of someone else. Selfish people cannot do this. Only those who are ministry-minded can do this. Compassion is linked to the mind of ministry. When you're compassionate towards others, you're having a mind for ministry. Ministry means serving. You're, You're there to help somebody else, to make life better for them. When Jesus saw the multitude, what does it say? He was moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. That's how we need to be. Verse 16. Be of the same mind one towards another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. And be not wise in your own conceits. Okay, mind not high things, but associate with the humble. There should be no prejudice of classes in the local church. No prejudice. You know, I guess, and let me just say this, as a pastor, one of the things I hate against some churches today, I don't hate their leadership, but the way they do this is they're focused on one group or another, one age group or another. There's There's a church in Minnesota a while back, they made the news. What they basically said was to their older people, listen, we want you to leave because we're not growing, and uh, you know, basically, if you leave, then we'll attract all these new people. And if you want to come back someday, once we've grown, you can come back, but leave for now. <laughs> Those are the very people who build the church. All right, understand that, friend. No, there's a reason it's called the family of God. 
It's supposed to be multi-generational. It's not supposed to be just this group with this group. Whether it's age, whether it's color, whether it's financial status, whatever it is, it shouldn't be that way. Years ago, years ago I remember, and I don't know if it's still this way, and I won't say which church it is, but years ago there was a church in St. Cloud here, and they were known as the Doctors' Church. Okay, the doctor's church. In other words, all the doctors in St. Cloud went to that church. There's something wrong with that. There really is. Now, I'm not saying we, you can't go to the church you want. What I'm saying, though, is that can lend itself to this prejudice within the church body, and that is a dangerous thing. Shouldn't be that way. Be of the same mind one towards another. See everybody the same. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate, okay? Be not wise, you notice this in your own what? Conceits, thinking you're better. No, we're all the same. It doesn't matter what you do for a living or what this one does or whether they're a male or female, black or white or Asian or whatever. It doesn't matter. If you've trusted Christ, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. We ought to treat each other exactly the same. That is, when that is taking place and that is being lived out, That is a beautiful thing. Now, I want you to notice something. Notice in all these issues that talent is not the issue, but having a mind and a heart for ministry. Has nothing to do with your talent, has nothing to do with your spiritual gift. It is us being what God would have us to be and having a mind for ministry to other people. I've heard people say, and it's sad, they'll say, you know what, I, I just feel kind of discouraged because I, I don't have a lot of talents and this and that. Friend, you can be used mightily by God if you'll yield your life to him and obey his word. Just, Lord, whatever you have, want me to do, I'm gonna do that. Those kind of people are the ones that get used. Now, these last few verses here, verses 17 through 21, These can apply to both believers and unbelievers. Many times we look at it and we see the emphasis is our relationship with the lost world and dealing with them. Well, that's certainly there, but if you've been in the ministry long enough, you know that the very things talked about here can be true of Christians as well, and that is unfortunate. I think the main emphasis are on those outside the church, and it would be great if it only replied to or if only applied to our relationship with the lost, but that is not so. Many times there are nasty conflicts that come up between Christians as well. Verse 17, here you go. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. We see number 12, the quality of a good reputation. The quality of a good reputation. Do not return evil for evil. The word honest means good and fine in nature, okay? Be a Christian in both word and deed. In verses 17 through 21, we are clearly called to supernatural living under the control of the Holy Spirit. Friend, there are people who are going to mistreat us. There are people who are going to be nasty to us. There are people who are going to say bad things about us, who are going to be prejudiced towards us as believers. All of that, yes, They're going to be evil towards us. God says, don't pay it back evil to them. Well, they insulted me. I'm going to insult them back. No, no. It's a lost man insulting a child of God. 
The child of God ought to live on a higher plane than to fight fire with fire. We need to have the quality of a good reputation. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Verse 18, if it be possible, see, God's a realist, isn't he? If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Not everybody, you're not going to be able to live peaceably with everybody. Some people are just cantankerous by nature. I've known plenty of Christians over the years. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't make them happy. You can't please them. They're not going to treat you in a right way. That's difficult. But what does God tell me? Here's what God says. Son, whether they treat you right or not, you treat them right. That's it. Recompense to no man. Evil for evil. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. There it is. But rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Revengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, that, that doesn't mean you're giving him a drink of water. You're thinking, yeah, this is really coals of fire. <laughs> you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you. No. You notice here, God is in control of this. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Leave vengeance up to God. He'll take care of, he one day is going to right all the wrongs. He's told us that. He's told us that. Leave that stuff up to him. Don't lower yourself as a child of God and get tangled up with people in this way. Now, this thing about heaping coals of fire, this doesn't mean to treat them badly, but it's the result of treating them good. You see it in verse 20? The coals of fire in the Bible were a means of purification. If we treat them right, it can bring them to a point of repentance, to a change of their mind, to a change in their attitude. This is the point. But to treat them evil with evil, fire with fire, that's just escalating the battle. Takes two people to fight. If one of them refuses, but instead has the mind of, you know what? Let's just not do this. This isn't, this isn't going anywhere, okay? If I've offended you, I'm sorry for doing that. Will you forgive me of that? I don't want there to be hostility towards us, okay? Listen, if you won't fight, they can't fight. They can hurl accusations and nasty things towards you, but no, nope, God's called us to a higher place, okay? Which leads us to our last point, the quality of being a peacemaker. Let's close over in Matthew chapter 5. Turn there with me. You know, when the Bible talks about being a peacemaker, this is not talking about being a pacifist. This is not talking about being a Casper milk toast, okay? Or you, know, you have no spine or any of that. You know what it's, it's talking about, friend? It's talking about one of the uh, uh, shades in this word peacemaker is the idea of reconciling. Reconciling. One of the great spiritual truths I've learned or or God has impressed upon me in the last several years, and I say it all the time and our church family probably gets tired of hearing it, but God is a God of reconciliation. This is the story of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, as soon as man sinned, what did God do? He showed him, he promised him, listen, I have a plan to fix this, Genesis chapter three. And of course, Jesus was that. And he Through what Jesus did on the cross, man can be reconciled back to God. That's the story of 
the human race. It is the story of God working with man. God is a God of reconciliation. God wants relationships reconciled. Now, you can have forgiveness and not get reconciliation because reconciliation takes two parties, two people. But that is always the situation. I've counseled with people who are in situations at hostile relationship with someone else. And sometimes it's one-sided and sometimes it's two-sided. That's not the point. The point though is this. I've said, you know what? You don't want to lose this relationship if you don't have to. What can you do to make it right? Okay? That is the idea of reconciliation. Bringing those two parties together to where now there is peace. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. In other words, that is characteristic of someone who belongs to the Lord, who's one of his children. That's the way it ought to be, a peacemaker. Peacemaker, not an agitator, a peacemaker. Does it mean we don't stand for truth? You know, I can hear people, well, you're saying you shouldn't stand up for the truth. No, you need to get your hearing checked. Never said that. The story of the Bible is reconciliation, okay? Not compromise, Not throwing the word of God out the door, but reconciliation. God wants people reconciled. And number one, God wants people reconciled back to him. That's why Jesus came, to pay for our sins so that we could be reconciled back to God. And so this is the key. You see, here it is. The Lord has called those of us who are saved to supernatural living. Don't be overcome with evil. Overcome evil. How? With good with good. That's supernatural living. Now, friend, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ the Savior, would you do that today? Would you put your faith in him as your Savior? He'll give you eternal life. He wants you to be reconciled back to him. Your sin has separated you from the Lord. Jesus came to make the payment to remove that barrier. All you need to do is trust in him as your Savior, and he'll give you eternal life. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.